the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Good to be back. Um, We are... Continuing on with this series of covering the book entitled Homecoming, How the Mystery of the New Covenant Brings Both Jew and Gentile Back to Abba Father. And um, the last couple of weeks, we have been dealing with the question is, what would prevent this one new man uh, of Jew and Gentile coming together in the end times uh, that we see in Ephesians chapter 2? Ephesians chapter 3, also in Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 3, and also in uh, the book of Romans chapters 9 and 10 and 11. And um, in two of these chapters of this book that I wrote last year, um, that you can get, by the way, by going to simpletruthministries.net, and you can uh, get your copy of the book there. We deal with some very interesting and challenging issues that confront um, both the Gentile church and the Messianic Jewish uh, community. Um, And I have entitled two of these chapters, which uh, are somewhat controversial, Um, and I identified that if this one new man in, in Jesus, in Yeshua, as his Jewish name is, is going to actually happen with Jews and Gentiles uh, coming together and forming alliances and forming um, basically compacts of we need them and they need us to move God's kingdom forward as described in those, three, um, those two epistles by Paul in Ephesians uh, 2 and 3, Galatians 2 and 3, and also three chapters in the um, book of Romans. It's important that you read these chapters because it's what God is doing right now in the here and now. And what can prevent our being coming together? We talked about what brings us together is the fact that we have a mutual father, and uh, we also have a mutual enemy who wants to take us both out, both groups. And so if nothing else, those two uh, motivations ought to bring us together. But there's something way more intricate, way, way more deep that's being constructed by God. I use that term um, precisely because there's an edifice that he's building, and we talked about that in Ephesians chapter 2 last week. If you want to take a look at that show, you can go on to the K Praise podcast listings. You can catch a lot of the previous shows leading up to this. And what can prevent that special dwelling place of God when Jew and Gentile come together? The enemy is going to try to prevent it because he's a divider. He's a liar. He's the father of lies, as Jesus called him, and um and basically gave him that title in chapter 10 of the book of John. And 
he wants to keep us separate. And the way he, the enemy, the adversary tries to do that is that we've had a lot of sacred cows in both camps, both the Gentile camp and the um, Messianic Jewish camp. And a lot of the identification of our two groups are founded on man-made traditions, man-made observances, man-made rules. Oftentimes when we go back to study the Scripture and you'll say, well, why do, we, why do we do this? Why do we do this this way? Or why do we do that that way? And a lot of times you'll find that there's not a lot of Bible for many of the things that are carried out. And the problem is, is that these rituals, these observances, um, they become sacred cows um, because somebody might come, for example, in a, in a secular context when you arrive at a company and you want to, you're taking over the factory, you're the new management, right? And you ask people on the factory floor, why do you do that this way, the manufacturing, the, the building, the constructing, whatever? And people will often tell you, I don't know. I was trained to do it this way. And, and then you'll hear almost always, well, we've always done it this way. And, of course, that um, begs the question of, is it efficient? Is it um, actually effective? <laughs> Does it work? And so that's why I wrote two of these chapters in this book, chapters uh, eight, which is the Gentile sacred cows that need to be addressed uh, before we can become effective as an ally with our Messianic Jewish brothers, and chapter nine, which is the Jewish sacred cows. Both camps have to take an honest look at uh, what we believe and why we believe it, and is it biblically um, based. So... Um, I came up with about, I think it was seven Gentile sacred cows. We've discussed a couple of them already in past shows. And, um, oh, by the way, if you do go to my website, simpletruthministries.net, go to the media page, and if you want to see the earlier shows with their titles, um, the dates, and their descriptions, uh, you'll see that in um, the media media page under um, radio and podcasts. So... We left off at this Gentile sacred cow called the Perversion of Grace. We've done two previous shows on it. Um, I uh, encourage you to go to those two earlier shows if you want to check out what we have said. Basically, I'll give you a very short review. Um, We teach grace, and when we say we are saved by grace through faith, um, uh, the word grace is oftentimes limited in how it's explained to people. And it's oftentimes limited in a Gentile context to be only uh, the forgiveness of sin. In essence, um, it's something has to take place such as unmerited favor. And we know that initial salvation is a free gift. Again, we described that last week, and we can explain that to the unsaved when we're doing evangelism in about three minutes. You can't earn your way to initial salvation through good works. It is a free gift. Uh, but the problem is uh, when we go to the evangelical rallies, um, and I remember I used, I used to watch Billy Graham on TV, and I went to his San Diego um, uh, meeting back in the 90s. And uh, the theme was basically the gospel is Jesus came to earth to forgive us our sins so that we when we die, we get to go to heaven. And I'm sorry, folks, um, that isn't the gospel of the kingdom. That may be someone's gospel, but it's not the gospel of the kingdom. And that's what we've been talking about, is grace only uh, the forgiveness of sin. In other words, yes, we do need to be um, delivered from our shame of sin, from our guilt of sin. And Jesus did come as the perfect sacrifice to assuage the ire of the Father and basically give us a clean bill of health to start all over again with a clean slate through his awesome and complete forgiveness. Um, But is grace only designed to be um, God's expense 
you know, for our blessings? Um, I don't think so. That's not what I see in the Scripture. And we, last week we talked a lot about um, another definition of grace, and that was Paul, Apostle Paul's letter to Titus. And I'm not going to go over that because the last week's show gets into that quite a bit. But basically, uh, the reference in grace was a whole lot more inclusive um, as to what grace actually means. And so just to give you a, a real brief review here, looking at the epistle of Paul to Titus, looking at uh, chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation to all men. That's 11. Look at verse 12. Teaching us, in other words, grace teaches us, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, we should live righteously and godly in this present age. Do you hear grace ever explained in that context? Uh, if you shop around and you're visiting different churches, I don't. I don't hear this teaching about grace at all. Look at verse 13. We're in Titus chapter 2. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Here's verse 14. Who gave himself for us. Why? Why did he give himself for us? That he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Okay, that's not just the shame and guilt of sin. That's deliverance from the power of participating in lawless deeds. Whenever we go against God's law, it's sin. That's what the scripture teaches very clearly. And here it says, he gave himself for us in verse 14 of Titus chapter 2, that he might redeem us, in other words, buy us back from the enemy who hoodwinked our parents and basically deceived them into handing over their authority to rule and reign on the earth, to be in God's image, to be in his likeness, and basically take man's purpose away from him. And Jesus is coming in and basically saying, I've come to redeem you from every lawless deed and purify, purify, That means sanctify. That means clean up. That means deliver from the power of sin and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Where do you hear that definition of grace explained? Not very often. And I wanted to um, also give you another definition of Grace, and I'm going to go back to Hebrews chapter 4. Now, I think there's universal agreement that grace means forgiveness of sin. It's a free gift. I don't think there's any dispute about that. The question becomes, is that the only meaning? Check out what, not just what Titus says, but also the book of Hebrews, looking at chapter 4, verse 16. Now, when you say grace is the forgiveness of sin, that's basically God being merciful. And through his, the son's sacrifice of obeying his father's will to the point of death, that's what broke the back of the rebellion, the angelic rebellion against God. It says here in Hebrews 4.16, 4, let us therefore, listen, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in the help. I'm sorry, I'll say it again. That we might find mercy, obtain mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. Now, if we earlier explained or defined grace as only being forgiveness of sin, that's mercy. But in this verse... It's making a distinction that grace has another function. Look at the context. I'll read it again. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That sounds like grace is something else besides just forgiveness of sin. 
to help in time of need. That to me sounds like empowerment. That to me sounds like authority. That to me sounds like a kingdom display of the presence of God to help when we are in time of need. I heard one time a preacher um, explain grace in this way. He said, grace is the presence of God for whatever circumstance, whatever situation you find yourself in. And based on Titus, based on Hebrews, we're going to start exploring in the book itself to see if grace is only limited to forgiveness of sin and not empowerment to break the back of the power of sin over us. So we left off at page 175 um, in the uh, chapter entitled Gentile Sacred Cows. And I basically said that we have invented a God, if we only teach grace as forgiveness of sin and nothing else, we have invented a God who has become so exasperated with the stubbornness of his children, in other words, the rebellion of his children. And by the way, I want to stop there for a second. I wrote a book way back in 2003, and it was entitled, God's Got a Problem on His Hands. And I asked people in that book to ask themselves, what is God's problem that he has on his hands after the rebellion uh, commenced by Satan in the second heavens, which that we see in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, and it comes down to earth and it blows up his entire uh, blueprint that we see in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, everything blows up, unfortunately, in Genesis chapter 3. And in essence, when we participate of initial salvation at Passover, we use typology or symbols or shadows or prototypes of the Jewish experience of their journey towards God. And we talked a lot about if you're a Gentile, Western, linear thinker, you're going to have a hard time interpreting a Bible that is not linear. Because Near East, Middle East thinking is not linear as Greek, Roman, Western thinking is. And we talked about the fact that this Bible was written by 40 authors, 66 uh, books written by 40 authors, 39 of whom, that means all but one, were Hebrews. They were Jewish. And they don't think in a linear way. Their whole culture, their orientation, their focus, their experiential history, their culture, their language, and is circular. It's cyclical, and it's circular. And if we read a Jewish written, authored Bible, the Holy Bible, in thinking in Western Greek linear terms, we are not going to understand its context at all. So I wrote a second book, and that was The Blueprint. It's called The Blueprint, and it Ask the question, is God's Bible design uh, Gentile linear or is it Hebrew circular? And that might seem like a question like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, but it's not. It's, it's a vital question because if I'm trying to uh, read a circular story with a linear straight line ruler tool, I cannot interpret a line that looks like a circle with using the tools looking like a straight line. That would seem incongruent, incoherent. It would make no sense. So if you want to see some uh, earlier um, 
teachings on that, you can go back also to the KPRZ podcast um, uh, going all the way back to August of last year when I talk about these questions. So try to do some review of that and try to go back. It's also on my uh, website as well, simpletruthministries.net. Go to the media page, and uh, we have the very first show going back to talking about Hebrew roots and Hebrew context versus Greek, Roman, Western linear thinking. So when I want to come back to this Gentile sacred cow of preaching, teaching grace as only forgiveness of sin, I said what we end up doing is inventing a God who has become frustrated with the stubbornness of his children that apparently people are teaching now that God changed his mind about the power of his grace not just being forgiven, uh, forgiveness, but rather being transformative, being redemptive. What does that mean? Buying back something that you lost. Father God sending his son bought us back from, from Satan who stole uh, us away. And the power of grace is his transformative, redemptive deliverance um, through his son, by his Holy Spirit, back to the Father. Um, We end up saying, if we teach this grace is only forgiveness, we're saying that God, the Father, basically decided to lower the bar of his expectations for us, that somehow (laughs) Father God's experiment failed with fallen Adam. In other words, fallen Adam just couldn't be redeemed. He couldn't be renovated. He couldn't be regenerated. He couldn't be resurrected, none of it. And he's decided to throw in the towel. Is that the story of the scripture? Is that the story of the, of the Bible? And unfortunately, our lives um, begin to reflect the belief that Father God has accepted that as long as we live in this fallen world, uh, we'll have forgiveness of sin if we repent, but that means we'll just have to keep on living under the power of sin. I've actually heard that preached, you know, um, I was invited to go to a local church about four years ago on uh, Super Bowl Sunday, and um, I had never heard this preacher um, preach before, and uh, a a relative of mine had invited me to go, and I listened. I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. This is what he said. He said, thank God for good old Jesus, because if it weren't for him and his forgiveness, I would have to obey God. Now, I looked around. We were in a, a school uh, it was a rented, you know, audit, little auditorium there in the grammar school. I was waiting for reaction from the people to start, you know, if there was a bucket of tomatoes or uh, something to s- throw at the pulpit and say, are you kidding me? You think that's why Jesus came to only forgiveness? Because as long as we're here, thank God for good old Jesus. Otherwise, we would have to start to obey God. And I looked around and people were nodding in agreement. And I came out of that service shell-shocked. I was stunned. And I said, wow, these sacred cows have ended up really perverting the significance and the meaning of why the Father sent his Son to die for us. It wasn't so that when we die, we get to go to a place called heaven, even though I do believe in heaven. I want to go to heaven when I die. I don't want to stay there. I want to come back and rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years back on this earth and even more after that. But that's, that's begs the, the question. It's beyond the point here. Jesus came, we told you last week, there are several verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that talk five times it talks about reconciling us back to our Father. Paul says that five times in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This whole ministry is about reconciliation, okay? And you can't get reconciled back to the Father only through forgiveness. We need the empowerment to become delivered, as we say in Romans 6 at baptisms. We want and need to be delivered not just from the shame and guilt of sin, but also from the power of sin which controls our lives. Jesus came to deliver us, not just to forgive us. 
Forgiveness is part one. That's Passover. We get forgiven. But if you want part two, you've got to leave Egypt. You've got to go out into the desert and get to know your God. Read Deuteronomy chapter 8. He's, God says, look, you, life is knowing me, says the Father in John 17, 3. In John 12, 50. Life is knowing me. How do you get to know me? You keep my commandments. Man, will that clean out your church? That's called a church reduction program sermon. But that's Bible. It's basic. And we have unfortunately twisted and maneuvered and warped and perverted the significance of grace to mean only forgiveness and not deliverance from the power of the enemy, from the power of sin over our lives. And so um, basically I say, well, if we say that, apparently God, Father God failed in his experiment with us as fallen Adam, and he's thrown in and towel. He's given up. And unfortunately, our lives begin to reflect the belief that he's accepted that as long as we're here, we just have to keep on sinning. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's not the gospel. It's to be transformed into the image of God and into his likeness so that we prove that we know him because we say your will be done. That's called obedience. Jesus asked the rich ruler, hey, do you want to live? Because he said, well, oh, what do I have to do to have eternal life? He says, you want to live? He said, keep the commandments. Where's that? It's in Matthew chapter 19, verse 17. Check it out. You want to live? Keep the commandments. Wow. Is that the message of forgiveness only? No. That's transformation from the power of Satan to God. See you on the other side of the break. Welcome back, saints. So we're going to pick up where we left off about whether our teaching of grace in Gentile circles reflects a Greek-Roman linear thought of just salvation is the great escape. Let's just get out of earth, right off the earth as a lost cause, even though it's our inheritance, according to Genesis 1 and 2, uh, Psalms chapter 2, Psalms 115, I mean, it's all over the place. It says, the heavens, yes, the heavens belong to God, but the earth belongs to the Son of Men. I mean, we have to realize our inheritance was stolen from us, ripped off. We got hoodwinked and tricked into handing it over in Genesis 3. And that's what this whole kingdom message is about. It's coming back, returning to the original blueprint that we see for God, creating man with a purpose, his, our purpose here was to have dominion over the earth, to have authority over this thing called earth, this material realm. And the fallen angels were furious with that. And you want to know what this is all about? It's about the angels trying to prove God wrong by putting man in charge of the material creation. That's it. That's what it comes down to. You said, well, where's that? Well, read the first three chapters of the book of Job. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Satan is there trying to prove God wrong about Job being blessed and being basically in authority over his material creation all around him. And that's 42 chapters of that discussion back and forth. That's what it's all about. Jesus didn't come to take us on a rocket ship ride from point A on earth to point B in the heavens. And that's what we've all been taught. Grace is forgiveness only. No, it's not. Grace is way, way more than just forgiveness. It's the empowerment to live a delivered from sin life. The power to live a life liberated from the power of sin. Delivered from the power of sin. Not just its guilt that we get when we get forgiven. No, Part two is grace as the empowerment to live as liberated children, delivered children from addictions, 
from of you know everything from pornography to lust to drugs from alcohol everything that has control over Christians lives who've been forgiven but don't know how to go to part 2 like where's where we get out of jail well look at Luke chapter 4 he says I Jesus says I came to set the captives free that doesn't just mean forgiveness from guilt and shame of sin that's talking about actual empowerment to become free, to become liberated, to become delivered from the power of Satan. You guys, we are not preaching the complete gospel. We are preaching at best a partial gospel. And unfortunately, you know, if you're in a courtroom, if you take the oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, if it's later discovered that you as a witness, after having taken that oath, didn't tell the whole truth. It's considered to be a felony, which is called perjury. Do we understand that? If we're going around preaching a gospel which is powerless because we only preach that grace is forgiveness, basically we're, not, we're telling a lie, which is deemed to be perjury in a court setting, which, by the way, Perjury is not a misdemeanor, punishable by jail time in, in, county, in county jail. It's considered to be a felony, which is punishable in state prison, where's where you go when you commit felonies. Misdemeanors, the time is served in your county jail. It's a serious offense. Maybe we need to preach, what did Paul say? <laughs> the whole counsel of God. W-H-O-L-E. If you leave out the, the most important part, which is grace, is the presence of God with his power to transform us, to redeem us, to deliver us from Satan's power. And we talked about that uh, a couple of weeks ago with um, Paul explained to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. And basically telling King Agrippa, hey, look, I went to the Jews. They rejected the, me- uh, the message. Now I'm gone to the Gentiles. But here's my, my mission is to bring the Gentiles from darkness to light and from the, listen, the power of Satan to God. That is not just forgiveness of sin. You need to be delivered from the power of Satan Where do you see that? Well, check out Romans chapter 6. The whole book, that's where we, what we use for baptisms, is talking about getting delivered from the power of sin over your life. Okay? So let's go on here. We're on page 175. Um, So does forgiveness of sin sound like the gospel of deliverance to you? Does this sound like the mindset of the Most High God or of His divine Son, this divine Son who's, who we see in Revelation chapter 19 coming back? Coming back to take the earth back with many thousands of His holy ones, say it says Jude. Um, those aren't angels. Those are the saints who basically were overcomers. They um, gave everything for God, and now they're coming back with Messiah Jesus to establish, to reestablish the kingdom of God back on our inheritance called earth, okay? The whole reason we have the resurrection of your human body, you don't need a human body to live in the, in the ethereal world of, of heaven, etc. You need, you need a, a resurrected human body in order to function down here on terra firma, on earth, so you can do all of the kingdom things, that God has planned for you. Where's that? Check it out. In Revelation chapter 5, it says we're a kingdom of, of priests and kings, and we will rule with Jesus back on earth. Revelation 5, 9, and 10. Okay, so let's move on. The defeatist notion that we will always just have to keep on sinning as long as we live here on earth is really a distortion and an out-and-out prevarication. That's a $25 word for it's a lie from the pit of hell. 
It's a lie which has taken hold of the contemporary Gentile church, unfortunately. So here's some verses that might bring some clarity to that. Well, let's look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. I'm reading out of the New King James here. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. You ready for the next line? For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Hmm. That doesn't sound like grace being an, uh, a full-blown amnesty that we don't have to obey God, as I heard in preach that morning uh, on Super Bowl Sunday. And it says, the next line, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Do you see how this message is so radically empowering? And we've been preaching a powerless gospel of only forgiveness. Okay, let's go on to another example. Uh, this is from First uh, John 3, 5 through 9. And you know that he was manifested, he referring to Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, which is his Jewish name, and you know that he was manifested, listen, to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him, catch a capital H, listen to this, if you live in him, this is what this line says, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins even as a believer, if you continue to sin, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, this, where are we? Where, where are we? We're in First John chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. He says in the next line, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. When we talked about that word of a couple of weeks ago. Of means pertaining to or belonging to. So he's basically saying he who sins belongs to the devil or pertains to the devil. The devil has sinned from the beginning. Now, put on your seatbelts, preach this out on the streets. For this purpose... The Son of God was manifested, okay? And notice, see if this complies with, oh, so I, when I die, I get to go to heaven. For this purpose, the Son of God was ma manifested. There's a comma there. That he might destroy the works of the devil. Well, let me ask you a question. After you were initially saved, were you absolutely transformed to be in the image of Christ at that point, or was there some residual stuff that was still in you that had to be dealt with? And that's why we go back to our earlier teachings on the requirements of journeys. Jews understand journeys. The <laughs> Father God brought the Jews after their deliverance, after their salvation on the 10th plague, okay, at Passover with the killing of the lamb, spreading his blood on the doorpost. We can see all that. Uh, symbolism of what Jesus was going to do for us okay, in beginning in the New Testament. But they had to go take a journey to go get reacquainted and get to know God. Why? Because knowing God was eternal life. Where does it say that? John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. If we go about saying, well, I don't know God, but I've been saved, well, the purpose of knowing God is to have life. That's the initial salvation is not a scholarship, I mean, I'm sorry, is not a diploma. It's much more akin, much more uh, similar to a all expenses paid, free, okay, free gift, but it's like a scholarship. You know, when you look at all of the Proverbs um, 
And uh, many of the uh, stories that Jesus was telling, basically he, in Matthew 25, he tells us all of the stories about people being given something and then the analysis is what did they do with what they were given, okay? And, and for example, if you look at Matthew 25, it talks about the ten virgins, five had oil, five did not. What happened to the five that weren't ready? Um, how about the parable of the talents? You know, uh, one was given, uh, one, one was given, um, let's see, gave one to one, he gave five to another two. Okay, this is uh, Matthew twenty-five fifteen, And to one, he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went away. He went immediately on a journey, and then he came back. Well, are these, I have a question, are these parables, are these stories that Jesus taught, are these focused on people who are not believers yet? Are these people who haven't been evangelized? Are these people who don't know um, that they've been given something very unique and very special? I would argue that the parable of the ten ten virgins, um, unsaved people don't have oil in their lamps. And only five, only 50% of these ten virgins um, basically took care of business so that their lamps were full of oil so that when Jesus did show up, that they were able to enter into the marriage and basically be with him for eternity. Wherever that is, whether it's on earth, whether it's up in heaven, doesn't matter. But notice the parable of the talents. Um, when the Lord comes back and starts to see, okay, who produced? Who was fruitful? Who was diligent? And people might say, well, you're trying to preach salvation by works. No, this is beyond salvation. The question is, why were you saved? The question is, what were you saved to? How's that for a question that needs to be asked by the church today? Here's another question the church needs to ask. What were you saved from? Do we ask that? Oh, I was saved from earth to go to heaven. doesn't say that. It doesn't say it in the Bible one time. What it says is we were saved from something. We were saved from the power of the enemy over our lives. That's what we're saved from. And when the Lord comes back to take a tally of these people who received this message, they were saved. Come on. These people are believers. Everything goes well for the guy who doubles his talent, the guy who got five and the guy who got 10. Everything goes well because they knew they were saved for a reason, for a purpose. And that was to be productive. Jesus was all about producing fruit. When he came upon something that was not producing fruit, it didn't end well. Look at the fig tree. The fig tree didn't have any fruit on it. It wasn't even in the season for fruit, and it still got condemned. So don't tell me that, that Jesus was all about only forgiveness. No, he wasn't. He was about giving scholarships, <laughs> free gifts, if you will, of forgiveness of sin, so that we could enter into the process and the journey of kicking Satan in the teeth and taking his knees out from under him and saying, you have no authority over my life any longer because sin will not reign over my mortal body. I am here to tell you that something got deposited in me when I was born again, and in you as well. And that's what Nicodemus was getting explained. You know, Jesus was trying to explain to him, hey, you got to be born again. Well, this seed that was implanted in us with initial salvation either germinates and comes to life and forms roots and, and then has life with, you know, leaves and fruit and and production and fullness and fruitfulness, or it becomes starved and kind of mangy looking and gnarly and, and just no life in it. And what happened to the guy who says, well, I knew you were a hard judge, so I just took my talent and I stuck it in the ground because I thought I was saved by, by grace. And that meant that I just hung around, you know, I thought I had my ticket to heaven and I was just going to get on an airplane or a jet or a whatever, a rocket ship. And, you know, Jesus did it all, and 
I was, but I was never taught the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is about the soon coming kingdom back to earth, back to us in an interior way where we let it inside of us because God wants to indwell us. That's the gospel of the kingdom. When God comes in to indwell us, guess what? You cannot remain the same. It transforms the way you think. It transforms your proclivities. It transforms your propensities. It transforms your desires. It transforms everything about you. And we don't teach the gospel of the kingdom. What did John the Baptist announce? He said, repent, which means change the way you think. Change the way you think about everything. Repent doesn't mean just to say, I'm sorry for my sin. It's included. It's part of it. But what happens after the forgiveness? The Father is saying, do you know me? The Lord, Lord Jesus Christ is asking, do you know me? Because what happened here? The guy who hands over the buried talent with the dirt on it, he ends up being cast away, cast away from the presence of God. I mean, was he saved in the beginning? Well, he was given a talent. He was given a talent. And, and so in verse 26 of Matthew 25, the Lord answers and said, yeah, well, you hand this back to me. It's one talent. And he said, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew I reap where I did not sow and gathered where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money in the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received it back with my own, with interest. And what happens? Take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant. Is this salvation? Do you call this still salvation? Into outer darkness? Now, it's not Gehenna fire. I understand that. But look at the description of what outer darkness is like. This is a believer who didn't do anything with his scholarship of salvation, initial salvation. He didn't ask the question, what was I saved from? He didn't ask the question, what was I saved to? He didn't ask for what reason was I given salvation at Passover when the angel of death passed over and I wasn't killed with the Egyptians. And I decided, (laughs) prototypically, to stay in Egypt. I was just going to stay in Egypt? Why? Well, that's where my garden was with leeks and onions and garlic and all that stuff. And... People, after they get initially saved, stay in Egypt because they're never told the truth about the, (laughs) what's the point of grace? Is it just to forgive? And that's why I wrote a whole chapter on this, of this being a sacred cow that the Gentiles have to deal with. So let's read the end of this. Cast the unprofitable servant, this is verse 30 of Matthew 25, into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does that sound like a future that you'd like to um, be wrong about? You guessed wrong because you got the wrong teaching that grace was only forgiveness and not empowerment to keep God's word, to obey his commandments. Well, where does it say we have to do that? Well, how about the Lord's Prayer? How about starting there? Jesus only taught us one prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Notice it didn't say your kingdom escape earth. Jesus was on earth when he taught us this prayer. He's saying, your kingdom come, your government, Father, bring it down here to the rebellious earth where we have, this earth is run by rebellious, demonic angels. It's kingdom versus kingdom. And the struggle is over us as part of the material kingdom who were supposed to rule and reign it in Genesis 1 and 2. And the struggle is over who is going to have the nations of the earth as a prize. You see that in the second temptation of Christ. <sighs> let's go on to, I want to finish it. Oh, so I didn't finish, uh, let's see, First John 3, 5 through 9. This, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. This can't get any more clear than this. For this purpose. That's the way it starts out. The Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Those works of the devil reside inside of us if we are rebel, uh, rebellious against God. Now, is there grace as we repent? Of course. Of course there is. It's a transformative process, okay? And we are imputed his righteousness, okay, when we exercise our faith in God, our trust in him, relationally saying, I know you, you know me, and I want to prove how 
or a better way to do this is prove the quality of our relationship, the quality of our relationship by obeying you. That's how we prove that we really do love God. Where does it say that? Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. If you preach that, in many churches today, I think a lot of people would say, wait a minute, I never heard this before, but it's right there. It was written by the Apostle John. These are the three epistles written by him. How can we be seen as righteous in the eyes of God even if we are sinning? Well, Paul wrote in the book of Romans that to control the damage caused by Judaizers, who, who are they? Well, this is a group of Jews who followed Paul town to town, and they basically were trying to undo all of Paul's teaching to the Gentile communities um, by basically saying, no, 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 you got to keep the, the rituals and the observances of the Mosaic law. And Paul never once compared the eternal moral law of God with saying we don't have to obey God. He was always saying if, if you know, the, we're beyond the law of Moses, he was talking about its rituals, its observances as to dietary, as to sacrificial um, ways of offering sacrifices to God. All that was... All that was put on the back burner after Jesus came as the perfect sacrifice. But he never said, stop obeying God because we're saved by faith through grace. He never compared the eternal moral law of God to grace. We as Gentiles need to read this book in its Jewish Hebrew context. If we don't understand what Paul was trying to explain... We will continue to pervert grace to be an amnesty for our continuing to sin. God bless you. Hey, we'll see you next week. We're going to pick it up at page 176. See you next week. God bless. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.